every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Jason Whittup, VP of Marketing at Metadata.io. Metadata.io provides a closed-loop account-based marketing solution that amplifies marketing campaigns with opt-in leads. Jason is an experienced and talented marketing operations and technology leader with a focus on developing high-performing teams through empowerment, challenging experiences, and trust. On this episode, Jason shares his insights on preparing for the future of content, the benefits of long-term thinking and marketing, and having intention behind the content that you create. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals, buying intent, and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Jason Whittup and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great, doing great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, excited to chat with you today. Excited to learn about metadata and all the cool stuff that you are doing in your own marketing and marketing in general and MarTech and beyond. So let's get into it. How did you get started? First job in Demand Awesome. Okay. Most of my career was in marketing operations, but the first time I actually got a sneak peek into Demand Gen, I was at Getty Images and I was director of marketing operations. And a lot of the work that I was doing, a lot of the insights that I came up with and a lot of my recommendations, I think our CMO was like, huh, maybe you should be doing Demand Gen as well. And so I got to add that to my title. So I got to keep everything that I was already doing. And then, so I think it was like director of ops and demand gen or demand gen and operations. It was like a random title and kind of quickly fell in love with just, yeah, just the demand gen aspects of it. And so flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role. Sure. So I was our first marketer hired. I was about coming up on three years ago, actually in September, it'll be about three years. The first six months I was consulting kind of as a side gig. I had a full-time job at a much larger established company. And I just really fell in love with the startup component because most of my career I've been in enterprise companies and just, yeah, just really fell in love with the product and then came over and said, hey, Gil, I'd like to help market there. And, you know, ipso facto, (laughs) three years later, here I am. But, you know, early on when I first started out, I was doing everything. Of course, I was a one-man shop. I've always been supported by quite a few freelancers, so I always have like a great set of freelancers. But today I'm responsible for all of marketing. We have a team of nine people now, including myself, and that just grew by six this year. So it was just myself and Mark Huber for the first year and some change. Then we hired our head of content, Justin. And then, yeah, everybody else I got now, a head of demand gen, product marketing, ops, So yeah, events, community. So now I've got kind of people leading all of these different functions. 
Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest, demand-gen secrets. So what does metadata do? Yeah, so we're ultimately building what we're calling the first marketing operating system for B2B. At the end of the day, it's a platform that automates just as many of the repetitive, mundane, technical tasks as possible for the B2B marketer in an intelligent way. And so, but our first foray in the product was around paid campaigns because we were like, paid campaigns, that's where most of us spend a lot of our time, you know, copy, paste, data in one platform, data in another, create a campaign in LinkedIn, then go and try and do the same thing in Facebook. You know, there's just all of this additional work that the B2B marketer has to do that just computers can just do it better nowadays. And so that first instance of the product was really focused on paid campaigns. And with some of the success we've had in building that out and some of the recent funding we got, now we get to build the rest of it. So in a couple of years from now, Metadata will be doing a lot more for B2B marketers. Today, we're really focused on automating paid campaigns, optimizing those campaigns to what drives the most efficient revenue, and then basically giving our marketers as much data as possible so they can plan their next set of campaigns. And yeah, what are your customers? Who are you selling to? And what does that buying committee look like? Yeah, so we're selling to demand gen marketers primarily. B2B software companies seem to be at the top (laughs) of the list for sure. Yeah, there's just a couple of them out there. We started to see some, some signs into fintech, but still tech in there, but you know, not like just straight B2B software. Some e-commerce, so we're starting to see some, some manufacturing actually, business services, but a lot is very, very squarely tech, 100% B2B. So 100% B2B and very probably 80, 85% of our customers are in some kind of technology software space. And right now we're really only selling in, we're only going to market in North America, but we do have maybe five to five, plus percent of our customers are outside of the of North America. What company sizes primarily, or is it across the board? It's more focused on the mid-sized business right now. I'd say our sweet spot is 200 to 3,000 employees. We have a lot of customers above that, but what we've recognized when we were smaller is that sales cycle is a nightmare. And so we just didn't have the resources to nine month sales cycle with 17 demo demo calls and bringing everybody else in. And so we capped our targeting. But now as we've gotten a little bit bigger, we've been able to open that up because also our analysis shows those bigger customers do have more success with us and stay with us longer and starting to do that traditional going up market motion. How does demand fit within your marketing strategy? Obviously, you don't have a demand gen team per se, or you have a, a small one, but where does demand fit within the, the broader strategy and what's your demand gen strategy? Yeah, so because of just how much I love demand gen, like we're set up as a demand gen team. We're either capturing demand that's already out there or we're creating our own demand to capture them down the road. And that involves everybody. So it was Mark and myself, we basically lead to slightly different areas. But our first higher was content because we knew that our approach, we wanted our demand gen approach to be one that was content focused and, but like not SEO content, not content to bring people to the website, content that actually would help marketers do their job better, agnostic of any tools that they own. They don't have to use metadata at all to get incredible value from our content. We would actually reach out to recognized professionals in our industry, you know, outside of metadata. And the first year we actually, we had $3,000 a month in our budget that we would pay 
external professionals just to write unique content because we didn't want to repurpose stuff they'd already written. So we're like, hey, will you write unique content for us? And then we had these big names, you know, in Demandgen that were writing content for us. People were getting value from it. We did things like our benchmark report where we used all of the data in our own platform, hundreds of thousands of dollars of spend and, and opportunities and all this data to write content about, you know, and then we did our big demand event last year for the first time. So our strategy has always been, let's focus on the B2B marketer who will, who are either today in our shoes or will be in our shoes and looking for help in the future. And through our brand, through the intelligence that we have around B2B marketing and demand gen, the successes that we're having, the partnerships that we have, let's pull all of that together and let's create a website. Let's create almost a media entity that can stand on its own and that people that actually want to participate in it, get value from it, read. And the strategic thinking was, if we do that well, people will come to our content and they'll think, oh, wow, this is smart. This is actually helping me do my job. Who wrote this? Oh, it was metadata. Oh, well, let me go check metadata out. Maybe, they're, maybe they have a smart platform. And that's what ultimately happened. And that was a big part of our strategy was content. So we had this rich content and ungated it at the same time, which is also hard to track, you know what I mean? But it worked. And then the second part of our strategy was really predicated on my early use of conversation ads in LinkedIn with an incentive for a demo. So I like to think of myself, I'm not the father of incentivized demos by any means because they were happening before, but I do feel responsible for the growth of incentivized demos just because of the success that we had and the amount of talking about it and writing about it that we did. And then all of a sudden I started getting my exact same ad back to me all the time, you know, and people writing playbooks on how to do this and how to use incentivized demos. And had you asked me four years ago, hey, what do you think about paying somebody $100 to come get a demo? I would have been like, your product sucks then. If you have to pay somebody to come, either your marketing sucks or your product sucks. You have no word of mouth, no product market fit. That's how I would have thought about it. But when I started that play at a startup where we have zero awareness and I saw how it worked, here's what happened. The $100 basically end arounds timing and pain. So like, Normally, if I'm going to take a demo, if I'm just going to give my time up for a demo of a platform, I have to have some pain. What am I experiencing right now that I just can't solve on my own? You just got me right when I was having this pain. Yes, let me get a demo. Well, when I offer somebody $100, they probably, they may not have that pain at all. They might say, that's a hundred bucks. That's a half hour of my time. That's $200 an hour. That sounds worth it. I wanted to tell the marketers, your time is valuable. I know your time is valuable. You're getting 9,000 other MarTech tools asking for your time. And I knew our platform was so good, I just needed them to get on the phone and see it and have the light bulb moments go off. Just wanted to get them on the phone. That's all I needed to do. And sure enough, they'd get on, they'd see it, the light bulb moments would go off, and then they wouldn't buy. They're like, oh man, what's going on? We did some analysis. Our incentivized demos converted at 3%. And then unincentivized at 12%. And yet the economics still worked. And then when we looked at it six months later, we we're like, where are all these organic demo requests coming from? And it was the people that already had a demo. And they had, now they were like, oh, I remember that demo I had. We got in front of them first. They knew about us. And then they came back and they're like six, nine, 12 months later. And they came back organically and converted that time. And so then when we look at it over time, the cost of the incentivized demo is actually lower than an unincentivized demo because just we shirked the timing at first. And so it didn't look like it turned into something over the long term. It really did. And it was because we got in front of them first in a lot of cases and made those light bulb moments go off. So that's like our two part strategy. It's such a 
gut-driven hypothesis that I think that we're all so afraid of numbers and doing a campaign and saying like, but this one didn't work. And especially then you see the numbers and you go, oh, that didn't work. And instead you just kept pulling the yarn and saying, yeah, but why? Like, why didn't it work? This idea of like, Marketing has to be remarkable, which means you actually, like the person should talk about it to someone else. And you know what you talk about? Getting a hundred bucks for a demo. Yeah, and we believe that you know, too. You remember getting a hundred bucks yeah, for a demo. Yeah, and we put that same thinking into our other ads too. You know, so a lot of our ads, we build them to not feel like an ad. You know, we're doing very low budget stuff sometimes. One of our best performing ads I built in 15 minutes. It was a 15 minute video of me. I start by typing like I'm on, I'm just talking to you. And it talks about how we do our demos and how like our sales process is very much consultative and not aggressive. Just come, just pop on a demo with us, you know, talk to a friendly sales rep. Um, that thing performed so much better than I thought. And so we do a lot of that, just lower budget, just let me get in front of you with just authenticity and transparency. And those are what's working really well for us. But would you say that the reason why you can do that stuff is because of the foundational commitment to content and improving the lives for the people that you're selling to? Because I think that it's really easy to say like, hey, you should be authentic. But it's like you also have the entire iceberg blow the water that's like, oh, all of our stuff has actually been authentic yeah. for two years longer, right? I think that that's like sometimes when people like want to make an ad like that yeah. and they don't yeah. feel like they can, it's because yeah. the rest of their stuff has been transactional or their salespeople are actually very transactional yep. or they care about like new logo, new logo or, you know, whatever it is. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious what you think there. No, you're exactly, no, you're very, that's a very good point because it's, you can liken it to, your personal selves, right? So sometimes, let's say you got something about yourself that you just want to change, you just hate it, and you try and change it, and like all your friends and stuff, like they don't expect that from you. You know what I mean? They're just like, wait, that's not you. That point you said is very interesting because that is absolutely the case. You can't be this transactional, like you just don't know, are there people behind this company or is it a bunch of machines? And it would be very, it would be jarring probably just to all of a sudden shift. All of a sudden they have their CEO coming out talking about himself and the growth of the company or whatever it is, whatever is transparent or man, this part of the product doesn't work very well. Like we've actually done that before ourselves. Then it's a more gradual, it's like a, a slower roll, right? You've got to basically have that and that's got to come from the top too, you know? And so I think that's where a lot of marketers are having struggles is they've either joined a company where it's like, oh, I can't do the kind of marketing that I want to do because either our culture or the leadership. So I do recognize the luxury that I do have, that I started this. I started it here. I set the tone. I hired each marketer. And, you know, the relationship that Gil and I have and the way that we think about it makes it work. How'd you settle on a hundred bucks as the dollar amount to give people? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I wanted it to, it had to have three numbers in it. Anything less than that just doesn't quite look enticing. Also, I wanted it to like jar somebody a little bit. Like what, why are they, how, how can they offer me a hundred dollars? That's a lot of money. And I wanted to show them how good at targeting my platform was, that I targeted the right people with that offer. So there wasn't a lot of extra money that I had to give away. I just wanted to see would people just like, what? Did they calculate my value somehow? You know, like, is this a unique number just for me? They calculated my, my hourly, but, you know, still fun. I'm also curious. So when you, when you got into those conversations and they came back, you know, organically, which really is not technically organic. It's not truly organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Direct. We'll call it direct. But they came back. <laughs> that after you had this, like, wave of yeah. people that came back, what was that process like to 
think about like why they came back and what were the levers that you were doing? Because I'm sure you were retargeting them. I'm sure that you have mm-hmm. brand campaigns that are running. You have a couple podcasts your additional content, was there other touches in the attribution there when they came back? And I know this is going to vary a lot, but was it like they came back? Like, I don't remember that demo at all, but I'm here for the new, or yeah. was it like, no, I, I actually just wanted to buy this eight months ago, but you know, sales cycles, that's how it is. You know, it was timing. It was like, oh, you know, when I, when I got that demo, it was a hundred dollar offer, but I wasn't in my budget cycle. You know, I already had everything spent that year or whatever. Sometimes it's, oh yeah, I had a, traditional ABM platform. I realized I don't need it, but I was paying for it. And this is where we get into this category problem that we kind of have since we don't have our own. A lot of our customers have like Sixth Sense and metadata because Sixth Sense has like really good intent data and it's like a good account prioritization for sales, but it's it's considered an ABM platform. So like they pay for it out of their ABM platform line item. And then they're like, ah, I don't have any more money. And we're like, well, we're don't worry because we're not an ABM platform. They're like, well, but I don't have a category for you. And so oftentimes it was... Yep, great. I just just wrapped up with Six Sense, or just and you know been just been kind of waiting. You know, um, sometimes it's they didn't have a competitive platform. I was mentioning early on. There's this light bulb moment that goes off. It's the same light bulb moment I had. I couldn't even say one of those reasons were like the most popular one over all the others. Although timing one is probably like the clearest timing and budget. One more thing before we move on to the next segment. So as you mentioned at the top, like this is very counterculture to the product-led CEO. If you build a product good enough, it will just fly off the shelves and marketers forever in a day have been saying like, no, that's not the case. Like, obviously you need marketing. So this is like the next step past that, which is like, not only do you need marketing, you literally can pay your customer or your prospects to become your customers because the product is so good. And then the CEO is like, yeah, but the product is so good. And you're like, yeah, I know the product is so good. And so in SaaS, in B2B, where it all compounds, where lifetime value of these customers is extremely high, especially for enterprise products, like we know that to be true. Why do you think that stuff like this hasn't caught on before? Why was no one using this? I would surmise that it's because you have a lot of these like product-led CEOs or CTOs that are like, hey, the product's good enough. Like, I, I'm just curious, like, why is why was no one doing this? Well, I think, yeah, you're. I mean, it's interesting. So the the best product wins thing. I so I used to think a couple things. First, I used to think I can math because I was in ops, right? I was like, I can math my way into marketing success. I was just like, it's a ma- marketing's a math problem. I used to think that, which is just not the case. And then I also used to think like. Oh, no matter what, at the end of the day, the best product is going to win, you know, because ultimately, like, you know, it might take years and years and years. But since working here, I've changed my tune on these things because, first of all, like the best product doesn't always win. You know what I mean? And I've actually seen that happen before. I've bought products, in fact, that weren't the top, but I felt like they were the absolute best. And at the same time, we couldn't do a PLG motion. So I want to, I would love to, but because of the amount of, we have to integrate with your LinkedIn ads account, your Facebook ads account, you have to sign data protection agreements because we're dealing with PII. You know, there's just like Mm -hmm. a little bit too much for us to be able to offer it, but I really wanted that. So without that, for us, the focus on brand has been like the biggest learn. I mean, I'm 45 years old and it's like been the biggest thing I've learned in marketing in my career was just how... And probably especially in MarTech, I'm going to guess, like, because there's so many of us out there. And literally, you could go to my website, 
you go to three other websites of other MarTech that are actually in completely different categories, like not even my same category. And we may all sound exactly the same and the buyer won't know at all what to buy and what we do. And so that's where I started to see like, oh my God, the power of brand. And when we realized like we had a strong brand behind us, and then when I saw what that actually did, our sales reps, for example, they love working here. First of all, I'm fed 70% from inbound. So like 70% of my book of business is already basically brought in for me. And then that other 30% that I have to outbound, every single person knows who we are. And they say, and they'll, they're happy to take a meeting with me. And that was where I was started to say, wow, brand is so important. And now I've completely changed my tune in the course of two and a half, three years from this like best product wins. Now category leadership becomes so much more important. Learning more about how categories work in software, how leaders of categories will take 50% or more of the market share and then like basically leave the scraps to the rest of the folks there. And I, I will not be a scrap eating <laughs> CMO, you know. All right, let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. You talk a lot about tactics in the previous segment, but we still need it. Three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items. Yeah, so first off, I already mentioned it, the LinkedIn conversation ads. And this is what surprises me is that that's what started this ride and it still is our strongest performing paid campaign. And I honestly am puzzled why. How has anyone ever run the same tactic for three years that actually was still your number one? Maybe paid search, but that's easy. The same paid social campaign for that long that actually still brings in a majority of your inbound demand. So LinkedIn conversation ads, if that got swept from me, like, ah, all right, back to the drawing board. Our own events. I know it's a big part of our strategy and our culture is to reward B2B marketers, you know, and to make them first-class citizens. So like the B2B Emmy Awards that we did, the Emmy stood for Experimental Marketer of the Year Awards. I gave $10,000 cash to the top winner. We had a bunch of submissions and great innovative marketing, B2B marketing campaigns. We were able to like have a big show and show everybody all these things and then give away $10,000 to the winner. Events like our demand event, we did the first one last October, we blew away our registration goals. We had almost, you know, 4,500 people register when it was just three of us marketers running this entire thing. And it was like a lot of people talked about just how good of an event. And so it was. So now I actually have a full event marketer. She is an absolute pro. She just started. And we have our metadata live customer event coming up. We're starting to do things in person. So like events would be the next one. And then content. Like the content that we have is now not only a competitive advantage for us, it's a moat. No other company could go and create the amount and quality of B2B marketing content that we have in a year. It would take them more than a year to go and try and create the same amount and quality of content and differentiated really too. So content is a moat for us. That's a must have. So you're at a minimum a year ahead of your competitors. And then they go, yeah, but yeah. what's the ROI of that? Yeah, like, yeah, know. you have all this stuff. I say, I don't know. But like, what's the ROI of that? What do you say? And the way, but the way we know it's working is a couple things. First off, we did see a huge boost in just organic visitors to the website. And it was very clear from when Justin started, you could see this like, you know, 
six weeks, eight weeks into this hockey stick, you know, on our organic traffic. He know he's like a content repurposing master. So A was just organic traffic to the website. And not only that, but we had a secondary goal on qualified demos that came from organic visits to the website. So we saw those start to go up. So we're like, cool, you know, that's working. The rest of it is feedback that we get, qualitative feedback. We have tons of gong trackers that we use to understand when a prospect mentions our podcast, a piece of content, an event that we did. We have self-reported attribution that we use instead of trying to like get fancy with digital attribution, which doesn't work. We just ask people, how did you find out about us? You know, or what got you to convert today? But then we see these things like when we launched our beta community, which we just launched like last week, how many people that we already have waiting to engage with us. And that's where we started to realize we actually have a community out there. We have people that are constantly consuming our content. They're writing about it. They're posting about it. We just haven't given them a centralized place to really come together and chat and see how that might actually have a commercial, some kind of commercial benefit to us down the road. And so we said, hey, let's do a community as well and start to bring these people together. So yeah, the short answer is we don't know. The better answer is luckily our CEO is 100% on board with us. And so it allows us to keep doing it. But the one thing I will say is I wouldn't have been able to do any of the brand content stuff if I hadn't come in and immediately drove demand. And that was, I think, gave, because our CEO is a marketer himself. Some of the things he knows are older things that just won't work. And a lot of the things he's a, he was a very good demand gen marketer from like a numbers and like running things technology perspective and just like scaling. So his approach would have been more of a mathematical like ops approach like I would have done. I had to start by showing I can drive demand very quickly, efficiently, I can bring in demos, so great. And so once I proved myself there, then it just gave me the runway to be able to do things that aren't measurable because the trust is there already. Yeah, agreed. At Caspian, we're making podcasts and video series for people. So the idea that you know you get yep. to someone and it's like, oh, is it working? It's like, well, we've done three episodes. So like normally our first season is going to be, you know, like, a year's worth of content, like spread out, you know what I mean? Like we're going to do 24 episodes over the course of a year. And then we're going to judge the yep. campaign over the course of a year. And I think that these like time horizons that, that get shrunk into the next quarter mentality into that thing. And it's like content is just not like that. You know, those might fall to the wayside. And I think people just like forget that, that it's like, this is a long-term build when you're doing stuff like this. Difficult again, if you have a CEO that is more, you know, or even a CMO that's just like, show me the immediate results. Because none of the content stuff, had I been asked that, I would have had to stop doing content pretty early on. Because you're like, oh man, we built this amazing piece of content and oh man, it's just not getting a lot of attention right now. But it's not that single piece of content. You're not gonna like have a silver bullet with one piece of content all of a sudden. It's it's a commitment to it. You know, it's a commitment to it. And our commitment to ourselves was this. It was, we're not going to use SEM Rush and these tools to like, just tell us exactly what content to write. We're going to actually ask marketers like ourselves, what content would we have wanted to have? What do you need? And then we're going to write that. And then when we write it, we're going to write it in a way not to try and get through it to get it on there. What's the right way to do this? You know what I mean? Who's the right person to write this thing? It was the intention going into it. And that's what I say a lot is like, the reason a lot of our stuff worked is because of the intention behind it. Like our demand event, the intention, I never showed $1 of 
commercial benefit to our CEO to get approval to do that event. I never even had to, he never even asked. He's like, how much are you going to spend? And just being able to do that and being able to create those connections, you know, is ultimately what's working for us. One more thing on, on short-term thinking. I think that because we have all of these tools that you can use and dump money into in a short term and that those can kind of band-aid over things, I think that there's an over-reliance at times, obviously, on those things, and they do yield results. And very spammy outbound is another example where you say, you know, the SVP of sales says, well, look at how well all of our outbound is doing. We're getting 3% conversion or whatever. You're saying, yeah, but the 98% or 97% of people that are pissed that we keep spamming them, what do they think? And it's like, those are the sort of things that I think a really savvy CMO has to weigh is like every inch that you're putting into building a content, you know, framework and a portfolio of amazing stuff is time well spent towards building something, not spamming people, right? And again, not that there's, I'm not saying like one or the other, but I'm just saying from a mindset perspective, the other things. And so anyways, when you get into the, well, like this quarter, we have to win this quarter. It's like, yeah, but our, our competitors are also doing that exact same analysis. And where we can beat them is by thinking more strategically and smarter and making bets today yep. that pay off in a year. Because if they keep dumping money into Google every single quarter for the next 10 years, they're going to continue losing money every quarter. Whereas we can build so that two years from now, we have more money. Yeah. And I mean, it's a great point. That runway is very short. You know what I mean? That is not a very long runway. And so we had to do both. We had to give the right amount of time to the short-term things to get the goals done. And then every other last minute on the things that are going to build trust, build the relationship, because that's really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build trust and relationships with B2B marketing prospects, let's call them, but I don't care who you are, B2B marketers out there. And that takes time. You don't build trust and, you know, that in like one interaction. And that's where if I just have one message from a BDR going out, to somebody and it doesn't land, that's your first impression. That's your brand's first impression to that person. And that's not building, that's not building the relationship. And so that's really our, that's our first, it's like the first level of thing we need to do in marketing and that's long-term. And so these events, these content that we build, when you do it consistently, because again, if you just do it once, then it's like, well, I can't trust you're going to do it all the time. So that the trust isn't there. So it's like build the trust, the relationship, and then what honestly happens is people don't need as much convincing about the product because they're like, well, you haven't lied to me in your content. You've been very transparent. You've been very helpful. So why would I think that I would get a different experience using your product? You know, and that's really, I'm hoping that I was 45 years old. I was, this is my first startup and I worked at all these big companies as a buyer and I just, all the marketing and sales funnels that I had gone through, it was like, this is what worked for me. You know what I mean? And I was buying at Tableau, at Getty, at Microsoft, at big companies. This is what worked for me. Building that trust, building that relationship, nothing transactional, you know, that didn't work. And then getting B2B to stop being boring. I needed humor. I wanted to be humble, witty, and funny. You know, I want us to be, be able to be funny and entertaining because I want to also be entertained. You know, like my job is already hard enough. Make me laugh, you know, and you've won, you make me laugh and you're smart at the same time. I'm like, Take my money. Let's get to the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. Because we've got 
punches and kicks. We talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitor, your CEO, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career, Jason? Although one thing I'll say is I, I you know, in most of my career, I, I always played like the, I always wanted to create like win-win situations for everybody. I really tried to avoid conflict and, and I would create these like solutions that I thought were win-win, but I didn't realize that like, oh, I'm avoiding conflict in this, but I'm creating a watered down, you know what I mean? Like end of the end of the day, watered down solution that kind of like gives everybody a little bit of what they want, but not doesn't serve one person exactly how, you know what I mean? They want to be served. And I say it that way because after taking this role at the startup, it was like, man, you really kind of have to look out for what's right. You can't center everything. You can't have everything like average out to the mean. You've got to stand out. And that can oftentimes create conflict. And my CEO and I can have some decent conflict, but it took me a while to like figure out actually how to do it. I would most of the time just like, oh, you're right. You know, no, you're right. You're the CEO. You're right. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. Once I built up the confidence, more of the confidence, then I was like, oh, wait, I have these feelings. I'm just going to tell them right now. No, I don't want to do that. And I don't like it. I don't like that idea. You know, Gil was probably like, wait, what, where's this coming from? This isn't the normal Jason. And so we've had, you know, we've had a couple dust ups. We're both respectful. You know what I mean? There's neither one is being offensive. You know, here was the behavior. Here's kind of was my assessment of it. And, you know, this is, you know, where am I wrong? I've learned a lot through that too. Gil has been the most direct boss I've ever had in my career, which has actually been a great thing for me. It's really not good at reading between the lines in my personal or my professional life. Let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like conversational marketing with Qualified, you can go to qualified.com and talk to someone quickly, just like these questions. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more. We love Qualified. Oh, we love They've been qualified with us too. since day one of this podcast and will forever yeah. be with us. Uh, we just implemented it, I don't know, a couple months ago, and we got... There yeah, you go. It's, it's Jason great. loves qualified, yeah, too. Yeah, we love qualified. There you go. I Need I say more? Jason already vouches. <laughs> uh, okay, quick hits. Jason, you ready? Yep, let's do it. Number one, what is a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I can juggle. <laughs> do you have it? That might be on your resume for other reasons. Uh, do you have a favorite book, podcast, TV show that you've recently checked out or would recommend? No, I mean, I've been reading a lot about category creation, you know, more recently, sure. you know, so like, you know, just the manifesto on it, play bigger. But you know, my thing is I tend to not read a lot or listen a lot. And I'm trying to figure that out. But or I'll, I'll read like the first three chapters of, bo of a book. I'm like, I got it. I'm good. I, I'm a pro at this now. So yeah, I don't have a lot of great advice. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> That's what they say you're oh, supposed yeah. to. Yeah, well, I, somebody, I think I don't know, Tim, Tim Ferriss or somebody, somebody along the way was like, yeah, if you it, never feel guilty buying a book and if, if you stop reading it, whenever you stop reading it is fine. Nice. Well, Basically like, the, essentially like, well, anyways, not to get all into it, but I think it's like generally speaking that publishing that maybe, no, maybe Seth Godin talks about this. Anywho, somebody talks about this, about how like essentially the second half of a book, essentially most of the time is just examples that proves the first you know third of the book that's kind of what i felt yeah i was like man i feel like i'm getting a lot of these like the ideas i wanted from the first part so yeah yeah maybe that's okay yeah you're doing great thanks <laughs> but no like i you know i really like 
Dave Gearhart, you know, I think everybody probably says that, but he's actually also an advisor for our company. So I get, you know, I, I meet with him every week. But I just kind of like his approach, you know, and, you know, he's kind of been through it with, with a couple places. So yeah, I like Dave. Do you have a favorite non-marketing hobby that maybe kind of indirectly makes you a better marketer? Oh, huh, that's interesting. I don't know if I do. I mean, I, so one of the things I like to do is I like to, I mean, I'm a mountain person first and foremost. So like if I'm not here, you can find me up snowboarding, hiking, just doing all kinds of things in the mountains. But that, I don't know if that helps me like, you know, be a better marketer. Legos, I'd say. <laughs> I actually still, I have actually one right now that I've been working on for a while. It's like, it's a Porsche. It's like, it's got a full working clutch in it. Like they worked with Porsche to come up with like to build this thing. My wife got it for me. You know, I think it's like just slowing down a little bit, getting the pieces organized, you know, before trying to like, you know, put them all together. So yeah, I'd probably say like playing with my Legos. That's probably the closest hobby I have. So like that helps me with marketing. <laughs> I love it. Final thing. What's your best advice for a first time CMO? Managing up to the CEO is probably like one of the most important things, parts of your job. Your staff is looking for you to be that buffer. They're looking to you to see, like, can they stand up for us when the CEO is asking ridiculous things? So yeah, I think coming in first time, you have a very important role to play with the CEO and how that gets translated into marketing and back. So I think building that relationship, building the trust, learning how to manage up to the CEO, I think is probably, yeah. Give, a, give that a lot of focus. And I think a lot of other things will fall into place. Jason, thanks so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Uh, for our listeners, go check out metadata.io. If you haven't already, clearly you should try a demo because it sounds like it's just a blast. Uh, Jason, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Bucks yeah, too. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't need a little extra coin? <laughs> no, the only thing I'd like to plug is our demand event. Again, this year, October, October 20th, I think. 20th or 21st, I can't remember. But uh, if you go to our website, it's a banner at the top can get you there or metadata.io slash demand dash 2022. Oh my goodness. And how could I forget that you have a popular podcast called Demand Gen U, Jason and Mark co-host and great stuff. And obviously perfect for our audience. Jason, thanks so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.